2: Academy Awards and 21 Academy nominations now bring you Suspense Unequaled in the History of the Screen Shock that will leave you speechless God, what have you done? Hush, hush sweet Charlotte Charlotte don't you cry Hush, hush Sweet Charlotte. I'll love you till I die. Yes, I told you. And I told your father too. Why wouldn't I tell him that his pure darling little girl was having a dirty little affair with a married man? You're a vile, Sarah little trap! How was I to know it would end in murder? But it didn't end with murder, it just began. What was the warped and twisted thing that turned this house into a nightmare? Where do you think you're going? Oh, I'm going upstairs and I'm gonna tell her what you've been up to. What's going on up there that you don't want me to see? Now Co-starring Agnes Moorhead, Cecil Calloway. Don't you think I know what you're looking for in my house? But what does it matter if you haven't anything to conceal? Oh, but I have. I have things concealed. Vile things. Where do you suppose I keep them? Haven't you guessed? Guest star Victor Bono. You know what it's costing me not to kill you. Also starring Mary Esther. Let me tell you, Miriam Deering, that murder starts in the heart. Don't turn on the light. It's only real when it's dark. I won't turn on the light. Come along. He's dead! He's dead! He's dead! Damn you. Now will you shut your mouth?
0: Right, guys, welcome to episode 14, 14 already Terrence, 14 wow. insane. of the Tragedy of Cinema. I'm your host Jimbo, and my co-host as usual, the ever-loving Terrence Davis. Yeah, that hello, guy, hello. That hello. he's awake yet. <laughs> uh, today we'll be covering Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and this film is fantastic. Um, so hopefully you guys have listened to it by now. So, let's go ahead and just jump right into some stuff. Terrence. I'm gonna jump in with the question right off the bat, and you're gonna struggle with this, I know. Probably. Why? we do is the most memorable cartoon non-anime line that you remember.
1: Okay, no, the most I'm
0: iconic. iconic. I'm not talking about Akira and all those other ones. No, no, uh, no I, got, you know. I got you,
1: I got you. I could think cartoons. Um, well, right off the bat, it'll probably be something Hanna Barbera, right? Uh, I kind of want to go as like Scooby. Like, Scooby? like the first thing that pops in my head is just. Shaggy going, oh, scoop.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's, there's, and I thought about this. There's two of them for me. One of them's probably uh,
1: the Flintstones, Fred Flintstone. And he gets kicked out. He's like, woo, mama. Mama. Actually, you know what? I I got one. Um, I want to say it's uh, Thundercats when he goes, thunder, thunder, thundercats, oh. Right. And and the other one I had was the, um,
0: Masters of the Universe, for humans like, by the power oh, yeah. of grace, God. You that's know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. Man, there's so many great cartoons. I mean, there's a lot. Let me, th- and they're not like they were when I was a
1: kid. They're just, or you got Porky the Pig and like the ending, like, <laughs>
0: that, that's all, folks. <laughs> yeah, but like today's cartoons are pretty terrible. I'm not gonna lie. So, there's, a,
1: there's a handful of good ones, though. Yeah, but not like,
0: not like we used to. Have. <laughs> so anyway, okay. And this day, we are recording this on July second. Uh, this day in history. First, Walmart store opens in 1962 in Rogers, Arkansas. Mm. And now there's one on almost every street corner. The beginning of the end. And Jimmy Stewart, which we have uh, covered on. Didn't we cover him in, um, what was it? I have no idea. Of course you don't. He dies in 1997. (laughs) Um, And I would just like to say thank you. Uh, Last, uh, two Saturdays ago, um, I got a text message. It was... uh, jerry from hillbilly horror stories he's like hey we're live in indianapolis tonight hope you can make it out you're my guest he's like we've got several other podcasts there so i was like yeah i'll try to make it so i get out there and you know the room is packed full of people because uh, they were doing a live show and uh so he goes through and he starts introducing everybody and then he's like yeah here's Uh, Jimbo from the tragedy of cinema and hands me a microphone and I was like (laughs) stage fright so I got to talk about our podcast in front of live audience it was pretty good so thank you Jerry I'm also uh, one of our listeners from Australia was there uh, Natasha Anchor. Uh, she's also Amber from Hillbilly Whorehouse, which we played the promo a while back for mm, yeah. for season two. She was there uh, also like Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances, the guys from the Brohio podcast. Uh, there's a, There was a bunch of them. I'm trying to get them to send me some trailers. I'll play it on our podcast for them. Give so, yeah, plugs. So Terrence, are you ready to dive right
1: into it? Yep. You right there? You're getting a little, yeah, a little frog in the little frog
0: in the <laughs> Hello, my baby. Hello, my... And there's another one. There's another one. That, another good one.
1: <laughs> that, was, that was actually, a, like, absolutely one of my favorites. <laughs> All right. Uh, so... Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Release date: December twenty fourth, nineteen sixty four. Budget was two point two million estimated, and then and today that would be eighteen point two million. It's gross USA. We're looking at seven million by nineteen sixty six, and then fifty seven point eight million in uh, with conversion and stuff for today. Uh, director: Robert Aldrich. Writers: Henry Farrell, screenplay, and Lucas Heller also part of the screenplay. Uh, and then the story by Henry Frell. Technical aspects, run time, 2 hours, 13 minutes. That's 133 minutes. Sound mix, mono, color, black and white. Back to the black and white movies. Very nice. Aspect ratio, 1.85 by 1. Negative format, 35 millimeter. Cinematographic uh, process, spherical. Printed format, uh, 35 millimeter. Now off to the awards. So there was, you know, very little uh information about you know the camera and stuff so we didn't get the camera. Um if I'm able to find it later we'll throw it in one of our Here's the information extra stuff episodes <laughs> Here's my 10 yeah. it's messed up the first <laughs> <I> time. <wrote. laughs> Alright, so Academy Awards USA nineteen sixty five nominee Oscar Best Actress in a supporting role Angus Moorhead Best Cinematography Black and White Joseph E. uh Joseph F. Bjork
0: Man, you even practiced that one before we started. And you still <laughs> I know, right?
1: <laughs> um, and it was on the F of, of all things. Yeah, uh, sometimes the, the, the I. Letter. Yeah, the letter, <laughs> the one letter that was super easy. It happens. Uh, best art direction, set decoration, black and white. William Glasgow, Raphael Britton. Best costume design, black and white. Norma Koch. Best film editing, uh, Michael Luciano. Best Music Original Song by Frank DeVol, Music and Mac David, Lyrics for the song Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Best Music Substantially Original Score, Frank DeVol. Uh, Golden Globes, USA 1965. Winner, Golden Globe Best Supporting Actress, Angus Moorhead. Agnes. Agnes, yeah. I, I,
0: Do you know what she's famous for besides this movie? No idea, no. Did you ever see Bewitched?
1: I have seen Wedge. I think it's her mom. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh snap! That's awesome.
0: Let I gotta... me double check my facts, but I, <laughs> that was just off the top of my head.
1: All right, uh, Edgar Allan Poe Awards, 1965. So that's interesting. I didn't even know there was a Edgar Allan Poe Awards. Has that popped up with us yet? Uh, I think it did. Was it for Cycle? I want to think it, it has. Cycle of Vertigo, it was yeah. one Um That's pretty cool. I actually kind of want to look at what those awards are, just because Edgar Allan Poe's writing is pretty good. Uh, so Edgar Allan Poe Awards, 1965. Winner, Edgar Best Motion Picture, Henry Farrell and Lucas Heller. Uh, Laurel Awards, 1965, which is the last one we're wrapping up with. And the, we they also won a Golden Laurel. Dramatic Performance, Female um uh, Davis and then nominee Golden Laurel supporting role female uh Agnes Moorhead.
0: And by the way, oh, Agne- best A- song.
1: Agnes Moorhead.
0: Yeah. She played Endora on Bewitched, which was oh, Samantha's okay. mother. Nice. And she also, which while I was looking this up, she was on uh The Twilight Zone. Ooh. Or no, her role in the radio play Sorry, Wrong Number Inspired Writers of the CBS television series. The Twilights under script an episode with Moorhead in mind, the
1: Invaders. Oh, okay, I, I remember that episode. All right, and then uh, wrapping up best song Frank Devol, Mac David lyrics uh, for song Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Maybe we should close out the this episode with that song. Yeah,
0: Just so, and it's it's crazy. It's in the movie a lot too. But
1: yeah, I'll I'll, I'll throw a little snippet or so in there. <laughs> All right, synopsis. 40 years ago, on the night they were meant to elope, Charlotte Hollis found her lover decapitated during a party, the blood on her dress, leaving everyone to suspect she was the murderer. Now, in 1964, Charlotte is an old recluse and must fight to keep her home. She enlists the help of her cousin, Miriam, who was there at the time of the murder. However, soon after Miriam's arrival, Charlotte's mind becomes unstable and she starts seeing her dead lover's head.
0: Bum, bum, bum. All right, now we're going to drop and, uh, jump into the cast. This had a lot of famous people in it. Of course, the main character, Betty Davis, she played Charlotte Hollis. Olivia de Havilland as Miriam Deering. Where have we heard that name before, Terrence? I de- can't recall. She played Melanie Hamilton in Gone with the Wind. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, Joseph Cotton as Dr. Drew Bayless. Agnes Moorhead as Velma Kruther. Cecil Kellaway as Harry Willis, Mary Astor as Jewel Mayhew, Victor Bruno, or bueno as Big Sam Hollis, Wesley Addy as Sheriff Luke Standish, William Campbell as Paul Merchant, and Bruce Dern as John Mayhew. So I went ahead and I just, I wasn't going to go into a lot of detail because we, are, we got to do an episode on feuds in Hollywood because Betty Davis and Joan Crawford had a huge feud and I can't do it justice in this short amount of time so oh, when yeah. we, we're going to do a special episode with It's
1: just about feuds.
0: So yeah I'm going to do that. So um, I just wrote a little something about Betty Davis because I'm sure we'll cover a lot more but uh, she was born April 5th 1908. Oh wow. And she died uh, October 6th 1989 of amesticized breast cancer in France. And uh, I wanted to put this in here because this kind of ties in with the Gone with the Wind episode. Um, yeah. The only role she didn't get that she really, really wanted was Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind. Hmm. But the only problem was she was under contract with Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers wouldn't loan her unless Earl Flynn would play Rep. Butler.
1: Oh, uh, so, so that's again, back with the contracts. The contracts yeah.
0: back in the day when they were assigned to a studio, yeah. they, unless they got something in return, they weren't going to give any. Would you stop opening your monster or whatever <laughs> it is? <laughs> um, so we're going to go ahead and jump into the facts and trivia. When Olivia de Havilland agreed to make this movie, director Robert Audrey called Betty Davis to give her the good news. He also requested she keep the news a secret until he returned in two days when he would legally inform Joan Crawford and her lawyer by letter. However, Betty didn't listen. She called her press agent, Rupert Allen, who immediately leaked the story to the press. Because Joan Crawford was originally scheduled for the role of Miriam, who went to Olivia de Havilland. Yeah. Um, and the stuff that Betty Davis did to ensure, you know what I mean? And the, yeah. Joan Crawford, I don't think, really wanted to do this anyway because um, she, like, fake pneumonia and stuff. So we'll get to it. Gotcha. Uh, Director Robert Aldrich had to take three planes, a train, and a taxi up a goat trail to get to (laughs) Olivia de Havilland's house, which was in the mountains of Switzerland. Oh, wow. It took him four days to convince her to step in and replace Joan Crawford.
1: Wow. A goat trail. A a goat
0: trail. I mean, I've heard of, you know, going on a rabbit trail, but going off a goat Goat trail, trail literally here. Right. Uh, The second movie in a row in which Olivia de Havilland stepped into a role originally announced for Joan Crawford, the other being Lady in a Cage in 1964. Hmm. Because there was no time to redo the costumes for Miriam, many of her clothes came from Olivia de Havilland's personal wardrobe. Because her and Joan Crawford were... Because they had already done some stuff with Joan Crawford's scenes. The painting of Young Charlotte is of Betty Davis in her role as Julie in Jezebel in 1938. When Joan Crawford was in Baton Rouge, she came to film Miriam's arrival. There was no dialogue involved. Joan was to arrive at the mansion in a cab, exit uh, carrying a small case, pay the driver, and lowering her sunglasses, look up at the balcony of the house where Bette and pigtails and a nightgown, was standing in the shadows, holding a shotgun. The scene was designed to be photographed in a wide, continuous shot, and thanks to Crawford's proficient technical skill, it was completed in one take. Later that evening, when publicist Harry Minds called on Bet in her motel bungalow, he found her standing in the middle of the room practicing Joan's scene. My God, said Bette, I've been here all evening long with a pair of dark sunglasses and some luggage, and I'm imagining getting out of a cab and trying to do that whole business in one gesture. How did she do it? <laughs> so i watched a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of videos about the feud. Um, like Betty Davis, there's a thing where she talks about Joan Crawford. Yeah. And she has nothing but respect for her when it comes to her professional career. She's always on time. She knows her lines. You know that. But she's like, ask me later about some other stuff and I'll tell you.
1: <laughs> so it's more of a personal feud. Type right. Thing,
0: it wasn't yeah. nothing about her career. Worth what, thing, what, what Joan less, Crawford yeah. does to her here in a little bit is pretty, pretty bad. Gotcha. Uh, John, or sorry, Joan Crawford was seething when she read that director Robert Audrick had replaced her with Olivia de Havilland. She was quoted in Hollywood Reporter saying, Audrick knew where to long distance me all over the world when he needed me, but he made no effort to reach me here that he signed once, uh, once that he had signed Olivia. He, he let me hear for the first time in a radio release. And frankly, I think it stinks. Oof. When Joan Crawford was replaced by Olivia de Havilland in the role of Miriam and production resumed on Wednesday, September 9, 1964, Davis and de Havilland pulled a ding-dong-the-witch-is-dead routine by toasting one another with Coca-Cola, a catty observation of the fact that Crawford's husband had been an executive of Pepsi-Cola and that she was now on board of directors. Joining in on the toast were Joseph Cotton and director Robert Aldrich. Song lyrics heard over the opening titles, uh, so we know about the song "Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte," but they changed the wording at the the beginning of the movie when you see it. It's chop chop, sweet Charlotte, chop chop till he's dead. Huh. Chop chop, sweet Charlotte, chop off his hand and head. To meet your lover, you ran chop chop. Now everyone understands just why you went to meet your love. Chop chop to chop off his head and hand.
1: Well, some pretty. <laughs> it's, lyrics some, it's some kids kid singing
0: <laughs> it to her because yeah. Uh, Betty Davis's trailer was parked at the front of the mansion, but she was seldom there. She set up a huge mirror in the hallway of the house, and she put on her makeup there. At lunchtime, she had her meals outside and the, with the director and the grips. A $200,000 replica of the Hollis House was constructed at 20th Century Fox Sound Stage 6. Hmm. At around the 28-minute mark, the taxi-carrying Miriam pulls up in front of the mansion, and for two seconds, Joan Crawford can be seen peering out from the backseat window wearing dark sunglasses and dark clothes. When Olivia de Havilland, as Miriam, is seen in the taxi before she arrives, she is wearing a hat and her clothing is light-colored. So she did squeak into the movie. Yeah. Yeah. On Friday, June 12th, hey, that's my anniversary, but not in 1960, <laughs> this is <a> 1964, <laughs> the last day of shooting in Louisiana after some late uh, afternoon shot, Joan Crawford was relaxing in her trailer on hand if she needed was needed for additional scenes. She apparently dozed off because when she woke up, it was dark. When she sent her maid to check when shooting would be completed, she found the place empty. The crew had packed up and left, leaving Joan at the rear of the house in her trailer with no transportation back to the motel. Outraged, Joan returned to Los Angeles, California the next day and checked herself into Cedars-Sinai Hospital. Hmm. Man, That's terrible. You can't, yeah. I mean, she's one of the stars. You can't Right. Even tell Ray you Ray we're done. Forgot about her. Jeez. After being in the hospital for five weeks, Joan Crawford returned to work on Monday, July twentieth, 1964. On the first day, after she spent three hours in makeup, she stepped onto the soundstage where she was greeted with applause and hugs from the casting crew. Betty Davis also joined in the welcoming uh, and handed Joan one perfect red rose. On the second day, Davis announced during a scene between Crawford and Joseph Cotton that she wanted some lines eliminated. I am cutting some dialogue, said Betty, uh, Bet, uh, or Betty, uh, wielding a large red pencil and exercising large chunks of dialogue from Joan's scene. Miriam doesn't need them, and you, Mr. Cotton, I hope you don't mind. These lines hold me up. Joan added, abandoned her professionalism and turned on her heels and went to her dressing room. After this incident, she was unable to work a full day without feel, feeling tired. Huh. So, so Betty Davis, you know, yeah, she was like, ah, oh, you don't need these lines. You don't need these. I'm yeah. sorry, sir, but you don't need these. lines. You're just holding me back. Jeez. And then, then of course, Joan Crawford's like, ah, oh, I just can't work this whole day. I'm feeling tired. So she was starting. This feud was starting yeah. to go. After being in the hospital for five weeks, Joan Crawford returned to work on Monday, July 20th, 1964. On the first day after she spent three hours in makeup, she stepped up onto the soundstage where she was greeted with applause and hugs from the cast and crew. Betty Davis also joined in the welcoming and handed Joan one perfect. Did I just say DJ? Yeah, man, man. man, I'm having a Terrence <laughs> moment. <laughs> <laughs> And you have entered the Twilight Zone. That's what happens when... Oh, my pen's in my hat. That's why. Okay. Uh, Agnes Morgan was the only one of the entire cast to receive recognition for her performance, which included winning a Golden Globe and receiving an Oscar nomination. When asked by Betty Davis, who he thought could be a possibility to play Cousin Miriam, Robert Aldrich suggested Betty's The Man Who Came to Dinner, 1942 co-star, Anne Sheridan. Ultimately, Robert uh, Aldrich persuaded her to accept Joan Crawford because she was the one that the studio wanted. Hmm. Joan Crawford felt that Betty Davis was manipulating Robert Aldrich saying she's practically directing the picture for him right in front of me, so God knows what else she's up to behind my back. I might wind up on the cutting room floor. You might wind up cut out of the movie. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I mean, that just shows, um, I want to say, sort of lack of... Uh, professionalism well definitely on her part but more so like on the director part like as a director you got to make sure the actors don't walk all over you yeah' like yes you want they end up getting treated to you know um, more at a higher standard than the rest of the crew and everything I mean obviously a director appreciates their crew but you know actors they get their own you know trailer and all that stuff but like the moment an actor starts uh, really stepping on the director's toes, it, it, it becomes really difficult. That's why no one wanted to work with um, Edward Norton, because he would do that. Uh, he would constantly try to butt into uh, the director and be like, "Hey, I don't like this, this, and this." And the director's like, Haha, "I'm sorry, this isn't your movie." <laughs> <laughs> On Wednesday, July 29th, 1964,
0: Joan Crawford worked until 1:30 p.m. Crawford then informed Robert Aldrich that she had overtaxed herself the previous day and would have to return to a less strenuous shooting schedule. Aldrich informed her that he wanted her examined by the company's insurance doctor. Resenting her sus- uh, his suspicions and harassment, Joan returned to her dressing room and made it clear she would no longer talk directly to the director. "'The only way they communicated was through me,' said Crawford's makeup man, Monty Westmore." Joan would tell me something, then I'd go and tell Audrick. He would give me a reply to take back to Joan. It was unpleasant, awkward position for me to be in.
1: That's terrible. Yeah.
0: That's awful. So you can't even get along with your director. Oh, man. Joan Crawford would always say, good morning, when she walked onto the set. Betty Davis, however, would seldom answer her. Three hours later, she might say, hi, prompting Crawford to look around to see if she was addressing her or someone else. (laughs) Oh, man. Wow. How would you feel, man? No wonder she walked off the set. Until his death in April 1959, uh, Joan Crawford had been married to Alfred Still, the president of Pepsi-Cola. After his death, she was elected to fill his spot on the Pepsi board of directors. While making this film, Crawford had Pepsi-Cola vending machines installed on the set and during rehearsals, costume tests, filming in Baton Rouge, and on 20th Century's Fox stage, or sound stages, she would sometimes have a bottle of Pepsi by her side or in her hand. In an effort to spite her co star Betty Davis had Coca Cola vending machines installed as well. And later when Crawford was replaced, she also had a Coca-Cola truck barrel through town just before Miriam sees Jewel Mayhew on the street. Wow. So that was the original Coke versus Pepsi <laughs> battle right there, you know what I mean?
1: And also like who's letting them run the show so like hard? Like I've never heard any movie where the actors just completely step in. Oh and, yeah, this movie wow, was crazy. This is, wow. But,
0: Uh, They did a movie before this called Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and we're going to have to cover that because it is really crazy, too, and that's where a lot of this started, I think. Maybe even before that. Gotcha. Uh, Final released film of Mary Astor, Young Bloodhog, 1964, was the last film on which Miss Astor worked, but it was released before this movie. Hmm. Though adapted from Henry Farrell's unpublished short story, Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte... This title was nixed personally by Betty Davis, who felt it was too close to whatever happened to Baby Jane. Huh. Upon hearing Frank Duvall's theme song for the film, Davis agreed with a suggestion, or perhaps was the first to suggest a switch to "Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte" lyrics from the song. Hmm. So there, there's your novel we were talking about. Joan Crawford's contract included a clause that stipulated she was not to accompany Betty Davis in any promotional appearances for the film. Huh. So, wow. Man. <laughs> The stuff they got away with, man. Right? The entire company was put up at the Belmont Motel a mile outside Baton Rouge, and when Joan Crawford arrived there, her room had not been made up. She then had to sit for an hour in the motel's lobby, and when she was finally put into a bungalow, it was next to the garbage disposal unit. (laughs) That evening, when the company returned from filming, Joan complained to Betty Davis. Davis replied, Oh, Joan, pull yourself together. This is Baton Rouge, not Beverly Hills. Davis's bungalow was across from Crawford's. It was slightly larger and more luxurious. <laughs>
1: just, wow, man! Just wow, yeah. It continues. I, it's I, I suppose. I mean, this is all, <laughs> this
0: is worse than the magnificent seven feud we've seen. To oh yeah, I mean that
1: was just like small petty stuff. This is a whole new level. This
0: is. And the bad thing is, I don't, is don't think I don't think these
1: two ever made up. This was a real. I mean, it, it sounds like it's not really something you make <laughs> up at, at all.
0: According to a August 7, 1964 news article at the time, cited by historian Glenn Erickson, Barbara Stanwyck and Loretta Young were approached for the role of Miriam when Joan Crawford became ill, but they turned it down. Young felt the role was totally wrong for saying, I don't believe in horror stories for women, and I wouldn't play a part like that if I were starving. At the time, Crawford was good friends with Stanwyck and Young. When Joan Crawford traveled to Baton Rouge for the location shooting, she brought along her maid, hairdresser, and makeup man. However, when they arrived at the airport, there was no one from the company to greet them. There had been a mistake in the schedule, and everyone was filming at the mansion. Somehow, Crawford's arrival was not relayed to the proper driver.
1: Oh, I wonder, I know, I wonder right? who did that. So, like, on, on this feud, it's like, I, I wouldn't imagine they'd make up. Because this isn't, like, like you look at Magnificent Seven, right? That's stuff. They can, did make up, though. They did, yeah. No, they did. What I'm saying is like that's something you can laugh about later. Be like, hey, remember when I was I kick away your dirt mounds because you tried to be taller than me? But like this stuff right here, we're talking between these two. Like that's not something you like look back well, on and be like, well, ha, ha.
0: well. I also read uh, from the previous movie, whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yeah, which we'll cover. But uh, I guess Joan Crawford had hurt her back, and there's a scene where Betty Davis basically Joan Crawford has to drag her. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they said that Betty Davis just went dead weight, so she, she knew <laughs> she had her back. Yeah. So she just went dead weight, so she had to struggle <laughs> harder to get her. <laughs> pull. I was like, man, just the stuff, man. Yeah. I can't wait to do that feud, feud episode we do. It's oh, going to yeah, be that,
1: fantastic. It'll be interesting for sure.
0: The brooch that uh, brooch that Betty Davis wore in the dining room scene belonged to Robert Aldrich's first wife. Um, he also had a couple of his kids in the movie. Uh, one of them was one of the boys at the beginning that's antagonizing her. Um, so he really put his family in. Okay, little into family
1: it. cameos. I like it.
0: When Miriam Deering, Olivia de Havilland, is preparing to close up the house in anticipation of moving out, she is packing a box which is stenciled Sam Strangest Storage and Transfer, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Sam Strangest was the assistant director on this movie. Joan Crawford and Betty Davis were cast in the movie by Robert Aldrich in the hope of repeating the success of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane in 1962. Betty got a producer's credit and conspired to make things difficult for Joan, who eventually was too ill to work, causing production to be delayed, resulting in her being dropped and replaced by Olivia de Havilland. Joan was only uh, only discovered the news on the radio after it had been leaked to the press by Bett's agent. Hmm. Or Betty, sorry. Uh, Production was supposed to begin in April, but Joan Crawford had to attend a Pepsi sales uh, convention in Hawaii that same month, so production was postponed until May. Wow. On Thursday, July 30th, 1964, Betty Davis was scheduled to report to 20th Century Fox to record dialogue with the other cast members. But the morning of the recording, she called Robert Aldrich and begged him to let her have the day off. Davis doubted her capacity to contribute much to the recording because she was so depressed and not knowing when and if the film was ever going to be finished. After speech, speaking with producer Richard D. Zanuck, Aldrich excused Betty and the recording was canceled. Man, I mean, she can get yeah. the whole... Yeah.
1: Just, wow. You just look shocked. I, <laughs> I, I, honestly, if uh, <laughs> like if I was any part of this production, you I, would be, I would be surprised that this thing got done. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, luck, luckily for all the... Um, all the uh, people who are working the set, um, it, well, I can't speak to it, but I'm pretty sure that they're probably union because whenever you work with, uh, especially nowadays when you're working with Hollywood and you're on set, they're union for sure, so they get taken care of. So if if director shows up late, anybody who who is uh, uh, shows up late, they they're still getting paid and they'll 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 be compensated for sure. So like as far as like the set workers, they should be all right, but like. Uh, when it comes to like the director, I couldn't imagine the stress that the director and assistant director were going through when dealing with this situation. Different time, different era, man. That's I mean, true. It may not. Yeah.
0: Uh, with Olivia de Havilland on board to replace Joan Crawford, cast and crew were scheduled to return to Louisiana so the exteriors could be refilmed. However, a week before the proposed departure uh, uh, on September 30th, the reshoot was canceled. And the existing soundstage exterior used instead notice how miriam has never seen in any of the real louisiana location shots the addition of the Hollisport news detailing the gruesome mutilation murder was dated tuesday may 3rd 1927 presumably the day following john mayhew's attack the next day he reports the socialite love triangle bar uh, Baird, and offers new clues in brutal murder on friday may 6. the film's theme song was nominated for an academy award and the version of it performed by Patti Page at the 1965 Oscar ceremony proved so popular a 45 RPM single of it was rushed into release. It went on to become a million-seller and peaked at number eight on
1: the pop music charts. Number eight? Wow. I mean, that's... Uh, and a 1000000 sellers. Se- yeah. I mean, this is the second time that um, a song made for a movie has made the charts. Uh, the other one being... Um, um, failing to remember but I know there was another movie that we covered that also had a single that moved into the charts so I don't really think it's only,
0: I don't think it's just the second one it's probably just the second one we've covered yeah no it's the second one that, that's what I'm saying it's yeah. the second
1: one we've of the ones we've done this is the second one that we've bumped into where there was a song particularly made for a movie and then that song was so popular it made the charts which is I think it's really cool the casting of
0: Olivia de Havilland to replace Joan Crawford and the reshoots that required inflated this film budget to over $2 million. About twice what had been spent to produce Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Charlotte was originally budgeted at $1.5 million.
1: Huh. So, yeah, definitely way over budget. Way. In 1926, Joan
0: Crawford and Mary Astor had been named uh, Wampus, Western Association of Motion Picture Advertiser Baby Stars. No, not Wampas from Star Wars. <laughs> Victor Boino uh, received a guest star credit. Um, among them, this film's cast amassed an impressive total of 27 Academy Award nominations for acting and won six Oscars. Whew. That's a lot. The film was clearly intended to be a successor to the 1962 Betty Davis Shone Crawford hit, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Although Charlotte was a box office success, grossing about $4 million, it was not nearly as popular as its predecessor. Baby Jane took in at about $9.5 million in its initial release. Ooh. John Megna, who played the little boy uh, dared to enter Charlotte's Haunted Mansion near the beginning of the film, had also appeared as the braggadocious neighbor boy who spent a memorable summer living next door to Atticus Finch and his family in To Kill a Mockingbird.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: Dick Buckus once said in an interview that he enjoyed seeing the film and jokingly said he could imagine some of the more gruesome scenes from it occurring during a football game. <laughs> wow! Joseph Cotton and Agnes Moorhead appeared in *Citizen Kane* in 1941 and *The Magnificent Ambersons* in 1942. Never heard of that second one, *The Magnificent Ambersons*. Yeah, either. Uh, but we both know the most famous film that came out in 1942. I'm sure you won't get it, but *Casablanca*.
1: Oh, okay. All right.
0: Opening credits. The characters and events depicted in this uh, photo play are fictitious. Any similarity to actual persons living or dead or events is purely coincidental. (laughs) 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 Two of the women gossiping outside the house near the end when Charlotte is being taken away by authorities are Helen Club and Ellen Corby, who both played main characters in the series, The Waltons. Do you remember The Waltons?
1: No, I don't know that yeah,
0: one. Yeah, you wouldn't. <laughs> uh, I know a lot of our listeners will remember the Waltons, uh, because they'd always, you know, at the end, be like, good night, John, boy. They'd go through the whole family. Good night, John. Good night, Elba. Oh,
1: okay. So that's... Uh, I, it's kind of I've along seen the, that sort It was of, kind
0: of along the line of Little House on the Prairie. Oh, okay, A little bit okay.
1: back in that same tour. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of movies sort of... Uh, I mean, maybe that's where... Is that it. where it started? Yeah, they yeah. spoof it all the time. Um, I think Christmas Vacation spoofed it.
0: Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Corby had appeared in two early films of Stone, Jared Crawford. The Caretakers in 1963 uh, shared no scenes. In Harriet Craig 1950, Corby played Crawford's younger maid. Although Davis was able to sing the title song on the soundtrack album in a guest appearances, I've Got a Secret episode dated um, the 1st of March 1965. Promoting the film, she was unable to do so that year's Academy Awards being passed over in favor of Patty Page. And I'm telling you, if you listen to it, it's a rough listen when Betty Davis sings it. I mean she has yeah. that she just has that voice that's just and the look. She's just <laughs> creepy, dude. I'm not I'm not gonna lie, she was a creepy lady. Uh, Betty Davis' son, Michael Merrill, says his mother did not want to do this film, and that the idea of the head being cut off and rolling down the staircase was something by which she was appalled. The film was shot at Humas House, plantation and gardens outside the towns of Darrow and Burnside, Louisiana, just south of Baton Rouge. The house and grounds are open to tours, and the tour guide points out several bits of trivia pertaining to the film on the tour, including the bedroom where Betty Davis slept while filming, and the spot where her character pushes the potted vase onto Olivia de Havilland and Joseph Cotton. Hmm. Hmm. Some scenes shot towards the end, the fake drowning, etc., are strongly inspired from similar scenes and shots by Henry's George Clout's Diabolic in 1955. It was a direct nod to Clout's film, and that is not the first time we have heard that. Yeah, that's... That movie. I really want to check that movie out because I have never seen it. So, we need to check that one out. Oh, yeah. Because there was a couple of movies
1: that we've covered that have mentioned or ties to that. I I want to give a little uh, shout out to that little tour. Um, If anybody's been on that tour that's listening, let us know. And then let us know what you thought about it. It's in Louisiana. just south of Baton Rouge. So, Yeah. yeah. Send us an email. Well,
0: I wonder if it's any haunted locations in that. A lot of the plantations in the South, like Myrtle's Plantation and stuff, yeah. there's a the little ghost tours and stuff they do, too. So is there? Oh, okay. I don't know. Have you ever heard of Myrtle's Plantation? No, I haven't. You need to check it out. I'll definitely check Creepy. it out. Creepy. Uh, who murdered John is never revealed. There is a speculation that Jewel, John's wife, who had planned to leave in a with Charlotte, did it because at the end of the movie, she sent Charlotte a telegraph, which shocked her, but it was not revealed what was on the telegraph, and John's murder remained ambiguous. So, leaving you with that cliffhanger there, I you know, know right? I don't know.
1: And then tonight on Unsolved. Mysteries.
0: <laughs> in the ballroom scene near the beginning of the film, the women's hairstyles are 1964 vintage rather than in 1927 style at the scene as the scene calls for. Hmm. When Charlotte returns to the house with Miriam after dumping Drew's body, Charlotte walks up the steps in her bare feet. The soundtrack is for shoes uh, clopping up to the steps and to the door. In the opening sequence, the quite obviously dubbed audio by Betty Davis does match the younger actress's movements on screen. The dialogue is heard as, No, Papa, whilst the actresses seem to be saying only no. Hmm. In the beginning of the movie, where Charlotte is being told that her lover was not going to run away with her, there are two birds in a cage. When you see the birds, they look like some type of Amazon parrot, but the sound they make are more like a parakeet. While waiting outside the Hollis home, Willis licks and seals the letter for Charlotte. When she opens it, however, it is unsealed. Uh, There's shots of Betty Davis shot heavily in in the shadows and an obviously uh, much younger double are unsuccessfully cut together in the opening prologue sequence. When Charlotte is telling Miriam off at the dining table, it sounds pretty dirty to me, she lifts her wine glass to her mouth. A split second later, she is lifting it midair. As household staffers pack up her belongings, a haggard Charlotte wanders through the house wearing no makeup. But the minute she sees an insurance investigator in the yard, she's suddenly wearing lipstick, eye makeup, and looks younger. Years younger. <laughs> when Miriam meets Jewel in public, a smiling young girl uh, extra with a bouffant hairdo and a ribbon in her hair can be seen walking behind them. Seconds later, the same girl walks behind them again. And no, it might it's the twins <laughs> from The Shining.
1: Uh,
0: as Miriam arrives, the scene from inside the cab clearly shows the driver turning right to go around the circular driveway. A second later shot from the house, the cab is still going straight before reaching the point where it has turned to turn. When Charlotte and Miriam are dumping the body of Dr. Drew, Charlotte's hair is braided and unbraided in between shots. Near the end of the film, when Charlotte leaves the Hollis house for the last time, her makeup varies widely from shot to shot.
2: Hmm.
0: When Charlotte becomes irate and chases the Packers from the house, the camera follows them fleeing from room to room. For a split second, a shadow of the camera or dolly is visible on the near wall as it moves from right to left. Throughout the film, Charlotte and Miriam keep on referring to the county commissioner. Louisiana is only one of two states in the USA that's not divided into counties, the other being Alaska. Distributed by, or disturbed by a noise in the middle of the night, Miriam gets out of bed and puts a revolver in the pocket of her negligee. Shortly after, a windstorm rolls a gun around her head, something that uh, would never occur uh, if there was actually something as heavy as a gun in her pocket. Hmm. There are at least two set-up shots uh, shot showing the entrance to the mansion at night uh, with what is clearly Dr. Drew Bayless's car parked out front where he, when he shouldn't have been there. Driving back from dumping off Dr. Drew's body, Miriam pulls the car over to yell at Charlotte. She initially slapped Charlotte several times, causing Charlotte to snap her head back and forth from the strikes. Each time Charlotte turns her head uh, her head to her right, it is revealed to be a stand-in for Betty Davis. Just before Miriam and Charlotte drive away to dispose of Drew's supposedly dead body, Charlotte is seen wearing thin slippers. When they return home, footsteps are heard on the front porch as if she were wearing heavier shoes. When Charlotte pushes a large pot on top of Dr. Drew and Miriam, presumably crushing them to death, their motionless bodies show no blood, no disfigurement, Not even so much as a single hair out of place between the two of them. Hmm. Come on, man. (laughs) So, I've also heard that,
1: um... A lot of of inconsistencies.
0: uh, Right. But, uh, the, uh... I forget who it is. the, the, The guy that... Charlotte plans on running away when she was younger. Um, he was like, well, can't we get, just get a, a, a somebody else to be cast as younger? And Betty Davis was like, look, dude, let me tell you a thing or two. <laughs> she, she just tore him up. So the guy was like, well, okay. And, but he said that she nailed it. So, all right. Clarence, what do you think of this movie? Oh, wait, you haven't seen it. But... So, yeah, full disclosure for everyone. Um,
1: I wasn't able to catch this one. I still do plan on watching it, so I'll give my thoughts on when we do a... a you know, information we missed, a uh, special episode like we did last time. But, but yeah, I'll definitely take time. This is actually one of them that I was looking forward to watching, and I just I, I couldn't get time to watch it. and um, so But I still do want to watch it. Uh, I do like the uh, type of movie. I did watch the trailer. Um, so, <laughs> did you see how creepy she looks? Yeah, no, it's I, I like the vibe of it. So I'm, I, I'm really looking forward to watching it. And I'm, I'm kind of bummed out I didn't get to it before the podcast, but I'm definitely going to watch it.
0: Well, like I said, um, before this movie, when I was a kid, the first time I seen it, it scared me. Man, that opening scene. There's just something creepy about a black-and-white film. Oh, yeah. Uh, it just, the cult, like Psycho, you know? And this, oh, the, yeah, this, absolutely. It just looks a lot more creepier. Um, it scared me when I was a kid. And before I forget, we do have an interview with my dad. Uh, That's He right. wanted to come yeah. on and say something about this. So I'm going to put this in here at the end of this, too, also probably along with the song and maybe a couple of... Uh, the trailers for other podcasts I sent Jerry a message from Hillbill Horror Stories he's supposed to be sending me uh, one here shortly but uh, yeah it's a great movie um, I just wondered how if you've ever seen Whatever Happened to Baby Jane I just wondered how this movie would have turned out if the Joan Crawford would have stuck it out and you know because they had such on screen chemistry and the yeah. hatred they had for each other in real life I don't know. Even though Olivia de Havilland, and by the way, Olivia de Havilland, from what I can tell, she is still alive. Oh, okay. Unless she has died recently. Uh, but everything I looked at, but she's like 100 somewhere. She was in, she was in oh, Gone somewhere. with the Wind back in... Oh, man. Yeah, so uh, she's just still being alive. Uh, it's crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I absolutely love this movie. Um, I know my dad liked this movie. My grandma liked this movie. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a must-watch.
1: So you say it's a must-watch for like horror aficionados. Or something?
0: I would say for anybody. Okay, all right. Um, it's got it's got it's got a little bit of horror, a lot of mystery, a lot yeah. of thrills. The, Betty Davis. It, you can't say enough for. Well, oh, one thing I wanted to say is when um, Betty Davis was nominated for an Oscar in this or whatever, yeah. And Joan Crawford went around and called all the other contestants. And said, hey, if you can't come out to Los Angeles, I'll pick up your... I'll pick up your... I'll go get your award for you. I'll go get your award for you. I'll go... Yeah. So I think that right there put Betty Davis over the top. And uh, from the couple of interviews I watched on YouTube, that by her doing that, if Betty Davis would have won the best actress or whatever, the film would have got an extra $1 million. So basically, Joan Crawford cut her own neck by going around the back.
1: Yeah. Because...
0: She would have had a cut of the movie. So would Betty Davis. Yep. And that's the one thing Betty Davis kept saying, even though, you know, Joan Crawford was uh, on time, newer lines, usually one take, blah, 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 that she, this is the one thing she didn't understand because it cost her her own money. I guess just the hatred
1: for her. Just, yeah. Just cause, I
0: was like, man. So, well, with that being said, I'm going to put in the interview with my dad here. Alright, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema. Today we have a very special guest in studio. Uh, It is my dad. He is also known as Art Toast in the reviews, if you remember me mentioning that. But uh, he has a very special story to tell about the movie that we just discussed, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. But first, let's get some information from him. Dad, the audience would like to know, how old are you currently? 63. 63. What was your first movie memory of all time? Mm, I don't know. It's hard to say. I don't know. No, you don't know anything. I mean, is there something that you were a little kid
3: that Uh, you remember?
0: I remember probably
3: one of the first movies I ever seen that was on Sammy Terry's uh, theater on Friday or Saturday night. Was a movie called Earth versus Flying Saucers. And how old do you think you were? That there, I was probably. It's I don't know, probably eight, nine years old.
0: What is your favorite movie of all time?
3: That's hard to say. It depends on the categories of things like that. I like all. The, I like older movies, even though I do like the Star Wars series and and things like that, but. Um, Oh, I've always liked uh, the uh, original version of The Time Machine, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. I like uh,
0: Dirty Dozen, things like that. All right, this movie, Hush Hush We Charlotte, starred Betty Davis. But also, I would like to know um, there was a real life feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Do you know what that was about? No, that's why I listen to your podcast. <laughs> uh, so, all right, you said uh, that you had a very special story because this movie holds a special place of a memory you have. So why don't you go ahead and tell us your story?
3: All right. I, when I was about eight or nine years old, Mom took us kids to the drive-in theater, and a friend went with me. Uh, I don't even know what we went to see. Um don't really care because me and my friend we would always go up to the concession stand and hang out, eat, horse around and play and stuff like that. We never really sit and watch the movie. And so, uh, the when the first movie was over, there'd be an intermission. We would go up to the playground um, and and play, and then the would they start saying so many minutes till show times and things like that. And we'd go back up to the uh, uh, concession stand. At uh, the second movie begin, which at the time uh, I didn't realize it was Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and probably wouldn't know it if I do know, knew what it was. But uh, you don't remember the first movie that you no with no your I don't even know what we went to see. This a uh,
0: Drive Angie had and two who, or three movies. Who all went with you to see this movie? You, your friend, your mom. Was your sister there? Yes, one of them or both of
3: them. Uh, both of them. What about your brother? I don't recall if, if he was there or not. Okay. But anyhow, I told my friend that we probably should get back to the car. And so down the aisle we went, and we didn't see the car. And so we went down another aisle, no car. We went down another aisle, and still no car. And so uh, we started sort of getting scared and, and said, what are we going to do? And so I told my friend, I said, I have a dime in my pocket, I'll call Dad. Dad worked at, at nights and things. The funny thing of it is, uh, I didn't even know his phone number. <laughs> so I pulled the dime out of my pocket, and we, I drop it in the gravel. And those of you are, that are not familiar, Terrence, like drive-in movies, uh, there's gravel all over the place. And we got down there in the rocks, and look, it's dark. And trying to find that dime. And
0: we couldn't find the dime. And for the audience that doesn't know what it, he's talking about, about trying to call someone, they used to have a thing called payphones, where you would put a quarter in or back in his day a dime. It was a you, dime. And you, you would dial the number and you could actually call uh, instead of cell phones. There were no cell phones. And you could actually call somebody from an off-site thing. What? No cell phones? <laughs>
3: what do people do? I don't know. And so anyhow... Um, we couldn't find the dime, so we started to go back up to the concession stand. And about that time, uh, we looked up at the screen, and all we could see was this knife coming out and cutting this guy's hand off. And then the knife comes down again, and you can see blood splattering on a statue in the wall and things like that. we're like, Ugh. And so uh, uh, we started to go back up through her in a few minutes. Here come my sister, and she said, what in the world are you guys doing you've passed the car three times <laughs> and so that there was my very first experience with hush hush wait charlotte which i experienced that movie again several times would you say it's a good movie would
0: you recommend to view it at least once <laughs>
3: not at eight or nine years old <laughs> yeah it's it's a good movie it's uh again uh great actresses in there um uh, so Betty Davis does an excellent job in that and so it's a really good movie. And I
0: also remember that song that they play, you know, which at the beginning when the kids go up to sneak into the house or whatever and go up to the house, go up to the house and they get there and uh, she opens the door with them eyes or whatever and then that music starts playing the music box, I think it is, it starts playing the hush hush sweet Charlotte yeah. song, you know. And I do believe it was actually a r- record song by somebody that sung it. I don't a guy that sung it. I don't know. I'll wait for the podcast to find <laughs> well, we out. we will find out <laughs> about that. Uh, that'll probably be in there. So, um, is there anything else you would like to add? No, I uh, just uh,
3: if you've never seen it, watch it once. and it, It's worth watching. Well, I remember once. when
0: I was a kid, and I, I think you showed it to me the first time. It, it kind of scared me. It, even though it is in black and white, um, it's not necessarily the gore, because there's not really a lot of gore. There's a little bit at the beginning, but... It's more of the storytelling, which is why we do this podcast, because the story that is told um, is more scary than the actual gore stuff that they show today. Well, th- that's what's great about the older movies. You
3: in, in the older movies, they didn't show everything. So your imagination filled in what nowadays well, they like, just watch you slice and right. dice and cut and all that. It's like there. the
0: original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You didn't see hardly anything. I mean, you seen him hit that person with, well, on the top with the sledgehammer, I think. But, you know, you don't see any blood and guts and all that. Um, so, yeah, I would say go ahead and give this movie a shot. Um, I, I'm, I'm almost positive Terrence has never seen this movie. So, Terrence, make sure you watch this. Um, and uh, if you would like to leave a review and mention my dad, a.k.a. Art Toast, as he likes to be known as because Artist was taking... <laughs> Uh, Go ahead and send us in an email or whatever. If you'd like to have him back on occasionally as a guest commentary to talk about older movies, go ahead. I'm sure he would love to do it. Um, He was just giddy when I asked him to come on and do this one because he's like, oh, I got a story if you ever do this movie. So um, with that being said, I think this interview is coming to an end. Thanks for coming on, Dad. Uh, And then probably the other ones here at the end. Uh, So uh, Terrence, any closing remarks or anything? None for this one,
1: uh, mm-hmm. just because, once again, I uh, do apologize for not being able to uh, watch this one. But I do, um, I do, at the very least, uh, before I watch it, I also want to check out that song. Uh, I- I'm always interested in songs, especially when they hit charts, uh, yeah. songs ba- well, know, that were made this for movies.
0: Well, you'll hear it at the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're still trying to get... I'm still trying to work on a couple more of the superhero um, movies. Yep. Uh, but we had a lot more listener requests come in. So I'm kind of torn between do I go ahead and do the listener request or do we still do the superhero movies? So do we just still do both? Yeah. Um, so we might out. get a couple of episodes out this week at least, and maybe a couple more next week. So hang tight. We got some more coming. Sorry we took so long. We Last week was just absolutely crazy changing work <laughs> schedules and uh, traffic, shutting down interstates and exits.
1: and The heat. Yeah, man. It's <laughs> just so to top it hot all and humid, off. man.
0: So, well, with that being said, uh, I'm not going to go ahead. I'm not going to say what uh, we're going to do next because I want to make sure uh, I'll release on Facebook, Facebook, the Tragedy of Cinema podcast group on Facebook. Uh, Thanks, Samuel, for doing that. That's really been fun to see grow and everything. So if you'd like to join us, just search us out on Facebook. Um, If you have a story or comment, uh, you can reach us at thetragedyofcinema at gmail.com. Also, if you leave us a review on iTunes, uh, that really helps us. Um, we got Instagram now. We got Twitter. Uh, we're all over the place, man. And also, we are trying to set up a live Facebook, uh, basically just a, hey, here we are. Let's talk about something yeah. with you guys, interact with the fans. And before I forget, I need to say something, Terrence, while I look oh, yeah, this up. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, while you're doing that, um, I just want to say thanks for all the participation on the Facebook group. Um, we like to post little fun questions and stuff every now and then, and uh, we always get some pretty awesome feedback. So a uh, big thanks to that, you know, keep that up. And, uh, you know, also look out for just random stuff we like posting about, you know, what's going on in Hollywood and movies. Uh, I see Jimbo on it posting stuff, and I'm like, oh, that's cool, right? So, Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking about... So since Terrence works a crazy
0: schedule and I work a crazy schedule, I might start releasing mini episodes called uh, Real Talk, R-E-E-L Talk, where we talk about or I'll talk about like upcoming movies that are coming out, things we've heard in acting, maybe recasting okay, yeah. decision on it. A little that more way, modern stuff. That way that Terrence we can is still in. here for the podcast, but it's stuff that he can still listen to, enjoy, you know what I mean? So he's not bogged down because he's married, too. I'm married, so it's gonna, sometimes yeah. it just doesn't work. <laughs> Um, but here's something I want to do. And I told him I would do it. This is from our listener in Australia, uh, okay. Patricia McCauley. Hi, Patricia. Um, she's about ready to have a second baby. Oh, so she's congrats. in the throws, training her uh, thing. But I'd like to shout out her co workers. Yes, you know who you are. There's Julian and Jessica. And I hope I say this name right. I hope I don't Terrence it. Uh, <laughs> Varshini. So you three amigos, along with Patricia, have been a great support over in Australia. Um, so uh, Julian, Jessica, and Varsini, I know you guys listen to it at work. So when Patricia's gone, I'm going to need you guys to download this and listen to it at work. Or if you each download it three times, each one of you, it would help us with our ratings and everything. So um, if you guys want to reach out to us on the Tragedy Cinema, I'll, you want know, to get Patricia back for sending me your names, uh, go ahead and I'll read it on there. You know, if we start a little Australian feud between you all. And uh, like I said, uh, she says you guys get a kick out of like the jokes we say, like what do you call a boomerang that doesn't come back?
1: Oh, that a one. A stick,
0: you know. I told her, I said, everything I know is from Crocodile Dundee or, yeah, right. you know, and I thought, I thought you all just had out back every day and threw shrimp <laughs> on Barbies. Shrimp on the bottom. I was like, why are they throwing <laughs> shrimp on Barbie? Why not Ken? <laughs> so, well, with that being said, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, especially our international listeners, man. We're in ten countries. That just blows my mind. That's awesome. But Australian, man, they're they're way up there. Also, Spain, Spain's coming in strong. So, um, if you're a Spain listener, send me an email. I would like to know who you are and uh, <laughs> maybe shout you out. Uh, you guys have just took off too. You're like real close to Australia now, and That's also crazy. our Canadian listeners. You know, they're they're coming up strong too. So, if you got anybody in any other countries. Let them know. Uh, spread the word. Share us on Facebook, Instagram, wherever you are. Tell a, yeah. tell a friend. Tell yeah. an enemy. Tell a friend of me. Uh, well, with that being said, I think this episode uh, 14. Yep, is 14. coming to a close.
1: And I. Uh, that that's, that Looks like it's it. I think. I think that's a wrap. Yep, and, and cut. cut.
2: Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Charlotte. Don't you cry Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte He'll love you till he dies Oh, hold him, darling Please hold him tight And brush the tear from your eyes Had a dream last night. You dream that he said goodbye. He held two roses within his hand. Two roses he gave to you. The red rose tells you of his passion. The white rose, his love so true. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte Charlotte, don't you cry Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte He'll love you till he dies And every night after he shall die Yes, every night When he's gone The wind will sing to you This lullaby Sweet Charlotte was loved by John Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte Charlotte, don't you cry Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. He loves you. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy.
3: We are the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories. What we do every week is we tell you mostly paranormal stories, and then we throw in a couple of uh, unsolved mysteries, maybe a little bit of true crime if it's creepy enough. And the beauty of this is that Tracy doesn't know the show, correct?
2: This is correct. Never do.
3: So then, what happens when you don't know the
2: show? I'm just as surprised as anybody else is.
3: And that's the beauty of what our show is. We basically get the same reactions out of Tracy as what the listener at home is getting, and I think that's been a success to our show so far
2: yeah i think it works
3: we also use our show to promote mental health awareness and suicide awareness every show so we get the added bonus of trying to help people out while you get to listen to paranormal shows
2: amen and that's what's important to us
3: so please subscribe to Hillbilly the horror stories wherever you listen to your other podcasts